Good morning. The readings this morning are Psalm 137, Obadiah, Matthew 25, 31 to 46, starting at Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hang, hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I did not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Now turning to Obadiah, which is after Amos. Obadiah, the whole of the book. Obadiah, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord, an envoy... Sorry, stop. Can we stop there? Yeah, keep going. Oh. Take it up from whenever you like. Take okay. it up from the beginning if you like. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord, an envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, T-man, will be terrified and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, 
nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Now turning to Matthew 25 verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will se separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in? or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Chapter 1, The Introduction. At 
the end of the 7th century BC, roughly 600 years before Jesus was born, the Babylonian Empire conquered the nation of Judah, destroyed its capital city, Jerusalem, and took the inhabitants of Jerusalem back to Babylon as captives. Two of our texts today, Psalm 137 and the book of the prophet Obadiah, relate directly to the day of Jerusalem's destruction by the Babylonians. And both texts have something else in common as well. Both texts relate to the behaviour of the Edomites as well as to the behaviour of the Babylonians. So we need to know who were these Edomites and what did they do? And what did they do on the day Jerusalem fell? Chapter 2 of 6 of Edom and Israel. Edom was the nation immediately to the south of Judah. And the Edomites were the descendants of a man named Esau. In terms of understanding origins, we need to go back to Genesis chapter 25 and following and read about Esau and his twin brother Jacob. As you may remember, Rebekah, their mother, was troubled by all the fighting that was going on in her womb, all the kicking and punching, and she prayed one of the great prayers of the Bible, asking the Lord, why is this happening to me? The Lord said to her, Genesis 25, verses 23 and following, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for Rebekah to give birth, the firstborn was red, and his whole body was hairy, so they named him Esau, which means hairy. His younger brother came out soon after because he was holding on to his older brother's heel. So they named him Jacob, which means heel grasper, a Hebrew figure of speech which has, which has much the same meaning as the English idiom backstabber, someone who deceives or betrays. One day Jacob would be given a new name, a better name, Israel, which means God wrestler. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the wilderness and desert areas, a man of wild caught game, a desert man. In contrast, Jacob became a tent dweller, a pastoralist, a shepherd, a man for looking after sheep and goats. Now, Esau, who was red and ruddy, also picked up a new name, a nickname, Edom, which means red. Not because he was red, but rather because of an incident involving lentil stew, red stew. But that's a whole other story. What we need to know now is that the promises that God made grandfather Abraham were eventually inherited not by Esau, the firstborn, 
but rather by Jacob, the second-born son. And so, as generation followed generation down through the centuries, the descendants of the twins became two separate nations. The descendants of Jacob were also known as Israelites. The descendants of Esau were also known as Edomites. Some 400 years plus after Jacob and Esau died, when the Israelites came up out of the land of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, led by Moses, they found themselves needing to travel through the nation of Edom to where they were going, the land of Canaan. At the border, they requested transit visas, but entry was denied. When they reapplied, Edom responded by calling out the military. So the people of Israel turned around and took the long route around. Much later, when Moses wrote his memoirs, he remembered how God had spoken to him about Edom, saying, They are your relatives. I'm not giving you their land. You are to treat them with respect, paying them for anything you take along the way, and making sure not to do anything that might provoke them to war. Deuteronomy chapter, 20, chapter 2. And so in the centuries following those events, you had two nations living side by side. To the north, the nation of Israel, a land of pasture, sheep, goats and cattle, a land of hills and plains, a land dependent upon rain in spring and autumn a land of pastoralists and shepherds. To the south, the nation of Edom, a desert nation, a land where the cities were impenetrable fortresses built high on top of towering rocky outcrops, a tough breed, a nation of strong men and of raiding parties. Chapter 3 of 6, On That Terrible Day. So what did the Edomites do on the day Jerusalem fell? Well, they stood on the sidelines and laughed. Or, as Psalm 137 puts it, they shouted encouragement to the Babylonian troops who were doing the work of burning buildings and ransacking temple and palace. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. And from Obadiah, a list of charges. Rather than coming to the aid of their brothers, they stood aloof to their suffering. When the looters cast lots for the booty, they were a party to what was happening, seizing a share of the plunder, looting for themselves as opp opportunity presented itself. And they gloated at their relatives' misfortune and rejoiced over their downfall. And with respect to those Israelites who fled... When they fell into Edomite hands, they were offered no sanctuary, no refugee status, no asylum of any kind. On the contrary, they were killed or handed over to the Babylonians. To return to Psalm 137 for a moment, we remember that that psalm ends with a plea to God for repayment. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy or blessed, 
is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Then that infamous last line, happy or blessed, is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. That last line is scandalous, perhaps in our age more than ever before, in the way that it seemingly revels in the prospect of babies being brutally murdered. If the first word is translated as happy, then it seems to be prompting an unthinkable vision of what constitutes happiness. If the first word is translated blessed, and either translation is equally accurate, then it seems to be promoting vicious infanticide in the name of God. But we should consider that the psalmist is someone who was there, who remembers what it was like on the day that Jerusalem fell. He is in pain because he has witnessed precisely the atrocities that he now describes, and he cries out for justice, repayment in kind. And the psalmist, of course, knows exactly whose job it is to repay, to take vengeance, in whose hand is recompense. Who is it who repays in kind according to what is done? The Lord, the God of the Bible. The whole last stanza of that psalm begins with, Remember, Lord. Remember, Lord. For Psalm 137 is a prayer, words directed to God. And of course, in asking God to repay, in acknowledging that vengeance is his business, not ours, the one who prays this psalm is someone who has transferred his own legal right to repayment in kind into the Lord's hand. And what is it called when we transfer our own legal right to repayment in kind into the Lord's hand? What is that called? Well, it's called forgiveness. Forgiveness is laying down our legal right to repayment in kind. Psalm 137 is about a few different things, but one of the things that it is about is that it is about forgiveness. So then, in response to the battlefield atrocities of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, if there is any smashing of babies to be done, it is not going to be done by the psalmist, who has already witnessed such things, he knows what it's like, but rather by the Lord. Chapter 4 of 6. What does Obadiah's vision teach us? Well, Obadiah's vision begins with the behaviour of the Edomites on that terrible day, but goes on to confirm what we've already been talking about. It is the Lord who will repay. Not just them, but in fact everybody. And that in this repayment, the kingdom of God will be established. Obadiah brings the Edomites a promise from the Lord, verse 15, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. 
It's commonly observed across humanity that what goes around comes around. The universe, it is popularly recognized, does seem to have some basic form of elastic moral integrity, such that various karma-like notions spring up from time to time across time and culture, and that sooner or later, kindness pays and crime doesn't. But the Bible expects us to know better, a lot better. For thus says the Lord, vengeance is mine and recompense. So, for example, Deuteronomy 32, verse 35 and 41, and elsewhere, repayment belongs to God. And in the act of repaying, his kingdom is established. But the Lord's kingdom will be established through the children of Jacob in the land of Judah on Mount Zion, that is, Jerusalem. The Lord made a promise to Abraham that those who blessed him would be blessed and those who cursed him would be cursed. And Jacob inherited that blessing and so did his children for all the generations to come. So then, indeed... Part of the message of Obadiah the prophet is that when Esau picked on that kid in the playground, Esau picked on the wrong kid in the playground that day when he decided to laugh at God's kid. Because to pick on God's kid is to pick on God. Obadiah's message then is this, the Israelites will repossess their inheritance, a holy deliverance will take place in Zion, the children of Jacob will be like fire, the rest of the nations like stubble, gone in a flash, up in a puff of smoke with no survivors. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. These things come to the Edomites in advance of destruction so that there is in, there is in fact time for them to repent. But they must repent. Without repentance, there is no chance for anything except destruction. Perhaps so far then, no real surprises. But there is a twist. When the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and took the Israelites captive, the Israelites knew that God was punishing them for covenant unfaithfulness. And he was. Centuries of prophets had so prophesied. And the Babylonians knew it too, and so did the Edomites. Isaiah, for example, had prophesied all of this from more than a century earlier. And his prophecies had been published and widely circulated. So the twist in this is this. When God is punishing someone, it is the wrong thing to join in that punishment. Even when we identify that someone is suffering as a direct result of their own sin, the right thing to do is to alleviate, alleviate suffering, act with compassion, to be merciful to those in need, even when, perhaps especially when, the suffering can be identified as suffering from God. Chapter 5, how is this reframed in the New Testament? 
Well, all of these ideas are taken up in our Gospel reading. Jesus is telling us about the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the full and final conclusion to this age, the day when the kingdom of God is fully and finally realized on earth. Matthew 25 verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Perhaps the first thing to notice is that it is indeed the Lord's job to repay. But we now understand that when the Bible says the Lord, it means the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his job to repay. The second thing to notice is that the people, whether identified as sheep or as goats, they are repaid in kind. Jesus is in debt to the sheep. Repayment is necessary. For everything they did to one of these, the least of his siblings, they did for him. The goats are in debt to Jesus. Repayment is necessary. For everything that they did not do to one of these, the least of the siblings of Jesus, they failed to do for him. Vengeance is mine and recompense, says the Lord Jesus Christ. And to pick on or bless Christ's brother or sister, indeed even the very least of them, is to pick on or bless Christ himself. Those who were identified as sheep must have had a debt to Jesus too, just like the goats. For all humanity is in debt to God to one extent or another and unable to repay. So they must have been forgiven their debt in order that that not count against them. The language of our Lord confirms that the gift that they are about to receive is ultimately a grace gift. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. In other words, Come, you who are lucky with holy luck. This is ultimately a grace gift, an undeserved and unearned present. Take your inheritance. Well, an inheritance is a present you get when someone who loves you dies. You don't earn it or deserve it. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world, a grace gift prepared before anyone had done anything, either good or bad. Vengeance is mine and recompense, says the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is only by the grace of God, only by the forgiveness of sins that we have by way of faith in Jesus Christ that the astonishing miracle of salvation can happen at all. We, we note, in passing, that just as the Edomites got 
into serious trouble for their mistreatment of the children of God, the descendants of Jacob, so too in this New Testament picture we see the wicked got into serious trouble for their their mistreatment of the children of God, those about whom the Son of Man says, these the least of my brothers and sisters. Chapter 6 of 6, how then might we live differently? Well, the passage about the sheep and goats follows directly from a parable, the parable of the talents. The clear intention of that parable is to teach us about what the Lord expects us to be doing in his absence. And the answer is this, we are to work hard with whatever, he's, whatever we've been entrusted with, investing it so as to increase our master's wealth. The passage uh, that we've read is a passage about judgment, about sheep and goats, and it gives us further information about how to invest what we have been given. We invest in others. We are generous with what we've been given. Feeding the hungry, clothing the poor, welcoming in the outsider, caring for the sick, looking after those in prison. Obadiah's vision clarifies that further for me. Obadiah's vision reminds me that I do not have to make a judgment when I see someone in need. Is this person a worthy recipient of my aid and welfare? Is this person being punished by God? Are these persons' circumstances an outworking of their own decisions? And therefore, would it be wrong of me to alleviate their suffering or mitigate their circumstances? No such judgment is required. Even, even if I was to reason this person is suffering because of the judgment of God, the right thing for me to do would be to oppose God in his judgment and to bind up the wounds of the afflicted even when the afflictor is God. God expects me to work against him insofar as he might ever, ever might sovereignly choose to inflict poverty, hunger, thirst, vagrancy, nudity, imprisonment, or indeed any other hardship on any of these, even the least of these brothers and sisters of the Son of Man, God expects me to come to their rescue even when he himself is the prosecutor. I invite you to take your yes buts, to Jesus. Amen.